Hi, this is Andre Dawson, and you're listening to Ryan and Chad on the Friendly Confines Podcast. Hey, everybody. We have a great show for you this week. Chad is off, but we have a wonderful co-host filling in once again from CBS4 in Miami. It is diehard Cubs fan David Agudelo, who is going to be with me. David, it's great to talk to you and always great to talk to you about some Cubs baseball. You're ready to get down and get ready for the 2021 season? Absolutely. Let's do it. And thank you, first of all, for the opportunity for thinking of me to come on. I know we used to cover the Dolphins beat and some of the other South Florida sports beat. And we'd see you down then and uh, always sneak in some Cubs talk. So it's nice uh, to do it officially. Let's do it. Absolutely is. Yes. David knows his stuff. We're going to be talking about the opening day starters. We're going to be talking about who's following the opening day starter. Plus an absolute crazy story with a Cubs prospect having to do with a meth bus. So don't, uh, don't want to miss that. Plus part two of our interview with comedian and diehard Cubs fan, Tom Dreesen. You don't want to miss it. So stick around because the friendly confine starts right now. Hi, everybody. I'm Ryan Lieber. He's David Agudelo. David, let's start as we always do in the first inning. And big news coming out of Cubs camp, of course. Nico Horner, who probably had the best spring training, arguably, out of anybody on the team, is being optioned to Triple A. This being done so the Cubs can control him through the 2026 season so he doesn't have the full years of service time. Um, so he's going to be in the minors for 36 days, and then I'm sure they're going to bring him up, meaning Eric Sogard is going to, or excuse me, Eric Sogard is going to be coming and staying with the uh, major league roster and David Bodie, and he will probably platoon at second base. What are your initial thoughts on Horner being optioned to the minors for at least the first month of the season? Well, it's standing operating procedure for these teams. Uh, you know, this is what they do and this is how they build teams and this is how you sustain winners. So you can agree with it or disagree with it, but this is what they're going to do. I'm not a fan of it. I think it kind of bleeds. It kind of uh, defeats the age old argument that you, you play, you have competition to win a position. And you're right. He, he proved he earned a spot. He probably deserves a spot, but this is part of the finances of the game that, uh, that some people feel needs to be fixed, but it won't be. It'll happen going forward. That being said, you're right. We'll see him. He'll come up. He'll give him a boost. If they are in a pennant chase, you add him when, when you can, and he's a crowd favorite. So he'll, he'll provide some juice late in the season. But to be honest with, with a guy at that age, who probably should monitor innings this, this early. Is he ready to play that many? But I think he earned the spot. I think he should be on the squad. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Listen, this is reminiscent of what we saw when Chris Bryant was a rookie in that 2015 season, and the Cubs decided to put him in the minors for exactly the same, maybe two weeks for the first week of, this, of the seasons because they wanted to make sure that they held team control of him, and ultimately they did, and Bryant had an, a spectacular year in 2015. Um, I, I mean, I kind of see the same thing. It's a business decision. It's not something that as a player you want to see because you obviously want to start the year with the big league club and you don't want to have to give up control of your own career. But at the end of the day, if this is going to allow the Cubs to hold on to Nico Horner longer and Nico Horner turns out to be 
a terrific player and the um, long-term solution at second base, then yes, I'm all for it. And I think this is something that needs to happen because we both know that once the 36 days is up, he's going to be called up and we're probably going to see more of him at second base than we are Eric Sogard or David Bodie for that matter. No, absolutely. And the Chris Bryant, you're right. It's the same, but I think also pre-World Series, that one was just a little more painful when you're like, we, hey, we need this guy. We need this guy. So Nico right now is not really some someone that's really needed on the roster as much as KB was. But talking about people who are needed to step up this year, let's move on to the second inning. Uh, the rotation, everyone looks at it. We have our one, two, three, Kyle Hendricks, followed by Jake Arrieta, and then uh, the free agent Davies they brought in. Um, what do you think about that one, two, three? Yeah, I mean, listen, this was kind of an interesting um, question that we have been posing throughout the course of the podcast because we were wondering who was going to follow Kyle Hendricks. Hendricks was the no-brainer, right? We knew he was going to be the starter going into the season. But now that we know Jake Arietta is going to be the number two starter followed by Zach Davies, I think it gives them a different look when you bring in Arietta. He's a guy that obviously Cubs fans are familiar with. He's someone that certainly can change the look of what the rest of the Cubs rotation will look like because the Cubs uh, don't really have guys that are really hard throwers, so to speak. Jake kind of will change that up, hopefully. Maybe we'll see some glimpses of him um, from, you know, years past. He's been looking good in camp so far, and he's looked good in his spring training games, David. So I, I kind of tend to think this is the right move. I like seeing Arietta at the top of the rotation, and I certainly hope that if we can get – 13 to 14 wins in an ERA in the 350 to 380 range. That's a win as far as I'm concerned when it comes to getting something out of Jake Arrieta. And Zach Davies, I think, you know, he's only 28 years old. I certainly feel like this is a guy who, you know, I, I feel can provide some consistency to the rotation and, you know, be a guy down the line who, you know, we're going to see in this rotation for the long haul as well. What about you? Well, I think it's old school baseball thinking, righty, lefty, righty. I'm sorry, left, um, righty, a soft tossing righty, hard, maybe a righty throws a little harder than a soft tossing lefty. I don't think you kind of want the two soft tossers or off speed guys back to back. So to me, that's kind of like the, the analytical side of it. And, you know, listen, Jake, for a baseball cliche, he's a bulldog. You know, I expect him to eat major innings this year. You know, every team has a guy like that. He's 35 years old. And can he reinvent himself? Can he pull what so many guys who threw harder at a young age have to do as they get older, depend on the curveball more, maybe develop a, a, a better changeup? You know, and especially with his, you know, we all know the stories on the torque he puts on his body. He's in great shape. But as you're older, that's what happens. So he's going to have to make that adjustment. Davies, you know, I like the age a lot. You know, you have a guy five or six years in the bigs. He knows what he wants to do. And, you know, having someone like him with a, a Kyle Hendricks, you kind of have similar styles from the other, you know, lefty to, to righty. That it's someone he can learn from and, and maybe he can make that step. So I really like that leadership, especially ahead of the younger guys who are going to make up the back end of that rotation. Let's move on to the third inning now, David. And of course, um, initially there was the announcement that the Cubs were going to be able to host fans at just 20% capacity. So it was going to be at about 8,200 fans. However, the Cubs have been granted a small bump by the mayor's office in Chicago. So an additional 2,000 tickets are now going to be available for that first homestand, increasing the capacity to 25%. So we're looking at about 10,000 fans that are going to be in the ballpark. What is your reaction and how excited are you that we're creeping up a little higher now when it comes to how many fans can be at the stands at Wrigley Field? 
Well, I was already planning a trip this year, obviously. Who doesn't want to go? But I was looking for late in the summer. So just once it all wears out. I don't know. I'm just kind of in that one day at a time. You know, after the first week, it could be up to 30% and then 35 So I think we just enjoy it. I wouldn't mind seeing some kind of reality-based TV show on the Marquee Network for who gets those 2,000 tickets. Holy smokes, there's got to be a mad dash. Is there a line? You know, their line, the waiting list has got to be through the roof. But I don't know. Let's do something. Put them in a house. Make them do some Big Brother stuff. I don't know. Give me something entertaining. Yeah, like listen, I'm all for that. Why not, right? Um, listen, I think as the numbers continue to go down, as more people get vaccinated, we're starting to hopefully see some more normalcy. And I think 10,000 fans in a 40,000-seat stadium is a great opportunity for this you know, franchise to allow the fans back in some way, shape, or form to give the not just the fans, but the players. You know, listen, the players need the fans as much as the fans need the games. And so yeah, absolutely. having the players have the opportunity to allow, you know, diehards to come into the stadium and enjoy baseball again, um, it, it says something. I've had the opportunity already to go to a couple of spring training games. And while it is not the same um, and it is a limited capacity, it's still it's still a baseball game. You're still there. You're still enjoying the moment. And I don't see why there's any reason why you can't do that in this situation as well. Yeah, I, I would say this, the the back to normal, but I, I call it a new normal because if you look at what they're doing, I think some of the stuff that they're implementing now too with the the touchless entry, you know, um, not having to take your phone or keys out when you walk through the, uh, the metal detector, ordering food from your app, from your seat and picking it up. You know, some of this stuff has been tried before, but a lot of this stuff was considered the future of sports and was kind of everyone was test rolling it out. But COVID put a fast forward on all that. So I think a lot of the some of this technology was in, in the works coming down the road. And like I said, COVID just said, no, we need to do it now. And so everyone's doing it now. And I, I think it could add to a better ballpark experience in the long run. And the, the stadiums now at 25% capacity, they don't have to go through trial runs at, you know, full stadiums. So, you know, I just hope people be patient and understand that some of those changes probably are going to be really beneficial in the long run. And I'll say one thing about the fans. They always bring the energy every single time they're there. Uh, we hear it on the TV. We see it. But the question is, in preseason and spring training, should players bring it 100%? And that's where we are now in the fourth inning. In preseason games, in spring training, what's your take? Should players play well, this all this is, out? of course, in response to Eloy Jimenez of the White Sox, who is potentially out for the entire season after injuring his pec muscle for uh, trying to basically uh, rob a home run and, and grab the ball over the fence. And he got his, his arm, uh, you know, stuck basically over the railing, which caused the tear in his pectoral tendon. You know, listen, you hate to sit here and say that because of this, players shouldn't go all out. You know, I mean, there are lots of guys who are, trying to make the roster, still trying to play, you know, as hard as possible. I understand, though, to some degree, maybe in spring training, you don't want to make plays that you don't necessarily need to make, right? Like, spring training, it doesn't count. So, at the end of the day, if, if you let a home run ball go over the fence, you know, does it really matter? Now, yeah, if this is a real game situation, of course, you got to go after that play. But 
sometimes maybe you just got to be a little smarter about what plays matter and what plays don't matter when it comes to spring training, because you, you want to be ready for the regular season and you hate to see something like this happen to such a, a talented ball player and Eloy Jimenez, who's, who's now up for the year. So I say, yes, you want to go a hundred percent, but be smart about it. And, and maybe there's times where you just say, you know what, I'm going to allow this home run to go over the fence and I'm not going to, maybe dive for the ball or, or try to climb over the fence to catch it. That, that's my two cents. What about you? I had some flashbacks to early Kyle Schwarber's career screaming, don't dive this time. Don't dive. Stop diving. Right? Stop diving. Just let it, let it play it off the hop. Because, um, no, I think you're absolutely right on that point. I, the only thing I don't like is if somehow that bleeds over into your other plays. If, oh, I only got one more at bat. I've already got three hits. I'm just going to take it easy. You know, I, I really think you have to – you know, I think you practice like you play. I mean, I, I really do believe that. And I think if you have lazy practices, you're not going to play well. So I think it, it very much is a fine line. And, you know, Joe Madden talked about it for years with his hobby bias to address it. He goes, no, I don't want to out, you know, you don't want to take, you don't want to coach the aggression out of a player. So it's such a fine line, but I'm with you on, on the dives and the jumps and the over eagerness to, on a play like that. Um, maybe be a little more mindful but no i want to see hustle because that's i think that's building that muscle memory and you build in that practice all right um no i I totally hear you i I think you're right i think it it at the end of the day all it's doing is you know taking a player like someone as we mentioned who's as talented as jimenez and as you said you know we saw it happen with kyle schwarber and yes he was able to come back but you know how cool would it have been schwarber was able to finally uh you know, play that entire 2016 season, you know, I mean, obviously the ending ended on a happy note, but it would have been great if Schwarber, if we got the full effect of what Kyle Schwarber was all about. So with that, let us move on to the fifth inning and man, in what is a story of the bizarre, David, um, pitching prospect, Jesus Camargo. Uh, this is out of Colorado. He's a Cubs pitching prospect. He was arrested last week on drug-related charges after he was found with 21 pounds of meth and 1.2 pounds of oxycodone in his Cubs equipment bag. I I don't even know, like, where to start. He was an international free agent signing out of Mexico back in 2014 and last pitched in high A in 2019. I mean, obviously, there's still a lot to this story when it just comes to what, you know, what you were thinking. I, I, I really don't even know what to make of this story. I mean, you know, I, obviously, there's so much that you can, you know, make jokes about. But this is so something so serious. And, and per reports, um, Camargo told police a friend who lives in the capital city of Sinolia, Mexico, called him in Arizona and asked him to deliver a bag to Denver, and he paid $500. And now, according to Camargo, he thought the bag contained shoes or clothing. He didn't know there was drugs in the bag, according to police. Um, just, I guess your reaction when you hear about this story, David, just what what you comes to mind, and, and just such a head-scratcher, to say the least. What do I think? It sounds like an episode of from, from Breaking Bad. It sounds like season two. Um, and he, since he's a pitcher, I'm going to call it Breaking Ball Bad. Um, but, yeah, it's insane. I mean, four felony counts he's facing, unlawful distribution. Um, he's actually from the town, and evidently there's a pretty big uh, drug cartel from that town. 
And so, you know, here we are thinking, you know, it, it, you're right. It's a very serious topic, but it's one of those things when you see the story, you're like, how, like, you're, it's not that smart. Everyone thought it was maybe he was Heisenberg for another Breaking Bad reference, or maybe he was Jesse Peekman, but no, he was Skinny Pete or Badger or Combo. He was low level. I mean, it's, it's really absurd that the, and he's speeding and he's drifting on the highway, like, holy smokes, like just poor decisions across the board. And, you know, listen, he's what, 26, 27 years old. He's been in the, the, system for five years and he's still at a ball so i mean obviously there's a lot going on there but um yeah it's just it's a lot to wrap your your head around and could be an extra excellent screenplay at some point i mean absolutely no this has like tv movie or movie in general written all over it um yeah i mean listen it is a serious story I know that people want to make jokes at the expense of, oh, well, this is why minor leaguers need to get paid more. I mean, look, (laughs) there's so much more to that than this, right? And, um, you know, at the end of the day, this young man's going to prison probably, and at least for a period of time. Uh, So it it is sad. It is certainly something that you hate to see. And it's just unfortunate that, you know, you see these guys who are, you know, coming out of Mexico or coming out of these international countries that, you know, things aren't always on the up and up, to say the least. Right. And there's things that happen, um, you know, whether it's players that get smuggled into this country that, you know, is a whole other story. We've seen that with Yasiel Puig and people that he's had to pay and for various things. So, you know, there's there's all these kind of like backdoor situations that are happening that we're not privy to. But yes, to your point, David, uh, it, it is absolutely uh, scary uh, and, and just unfortunate, to, to say the least. Well, from something you don't want to see, let's go to the sixth inning to something I think we all want to see. And then we're maybe some of us are excited about. I know I'm intrigued. And that's uh, Ryan Sandberg, Hall of Famer, joining the Marquee Network. Yes. So Ryan Sandberg, of course, Sandberg was my favorite player growing up as a kid. I idolized him to this day. I've always wanted to meet him. I've never had the opportunity to do so. I'm hoping one day I will have that chance. But, um, you know, this is an interesting move because, you know, you remember, David, when Sandberg was playing, he was kind of known as like a really quiet, didn't really say much, wasn't one to kind of give his opinion. But over the years, um, Rhino has certainly been a guy who has, I think, blossomed with his personality. He's been more outspoken. He's been a major league manager. He's had the opportunity to manage the Phillies. So this is a guy who I think is much more comfortable in the spotlight as he has now gotten older um, than he was when he was a player um, because he was never one who, while an amazing baseball player and, of course, a Hall of Famer, Um, never one that was really kind of the spokesperson or the person that everybody kind of would point to. He kind of, you know, shunned the media a little bit just because I don't think he was comfortable with it. Um, And now it's nice to see that he's really um, in a place where he feels more comfortable and confident to give his opinion and and hear what he has to think because, listen, he's one of the greatest Cubs of of all time. And I would love to hear his perspective. So I'm looking forward to it. What about you? Well, uh, well, first of all, let me say that odds are any any Cubs fan growing up in the 80s or 90s, Sandberg was probably, you know, number one. I know I had his, his poster on my wall next to, to Gracie, Mark Grace. So, yeah, I mean, obviously his 
he's as, as popular as they come. I, I'm a little different with some of the experts. I, I, I consider myself a bit of a sports snob. So I, I maybe think one thing for him is that he had to get comfortable in the TV role. I mean, a lot of people think you could just get on TV and you're good, but no, you have to, you know, you have to learn how to, to share your criticisms without being too, you know, confrontational or too rude. Um, so there's a real there's a real art to it and trick to it, which I'm sure you remember from your years in it and, as, and actually, you know, still doing the podcast now. So I'm sure it come, came with time getting comfortable. I, I've done I've done reports and interviews with, you know, retired players who just they, they still won't call out people. They don't want to do it. So that takes a little time to get used to. I just hope he teaches us. I really like I like the experts to tell me something I don't know. You know, don't give me the generic talk like, oh, you don't want to lead. You know, you don't want to start an inning walking a batter. Okay, yeah, I know that. Like, give me more deeper knowledge than that. And that's what I'd like to see from him. Take me inside the game. Show me some things that maybe I don't know or, or stuff along that line. That's what I want from my my experts. And now part two of the boys interview with comedian Tom Driesen. So, Tom, um, you know, we were talking a little before we started recording about some of your Chicago roots as you were getting started. And I mentioned my my season ticket holder neighbors, uh, Marty and Linda Silber. Linda actually said she performed uh, with you at a show at Le, Le Pub, which was uh, you said uh, was one of the, the you created kind of the comedy scene or you're one of the first ones to bring it to Chicago. I bring that up because you were a part of such a groundbreaking uh, comedy group, uh, Tim and Tom, um, and it, at, the, it, at the time, it was the first one, first uh, uh, biracial uh, group of, of its kind in America and uh, in so cutting edge. And I just would want to know, you know, as you've seen, because this last year was such a tumultuous year um, with it in terms of, of uh, equity and, and racial justice, you know, when you think about what you did and the stand you took and you think about where we are in, in America history right now, you know, do, do you do you put more weight on on what you did back then? Do you feel like um, it was the start of something big? And what do you think? You know, how much further do we have to go here? Tim Reed and I were America's first black and white comedy team. History shows were the last. We started mm. out in 1969 to 1975. There were no comedy clubs in America at that time, so we worked all black clubs in the North and the South, what they affectionately call the Chitlin Circuit, black owned, black operated nightclubs. And, you know, like in Chicago, it was the Burning Spear, the High Chaparral, uh, the Guys and Gals Lounge, the Dating Club Lounge. Um, you know, th- those are the black clubs we worked in. And then in Boston, it was a sugar shack. In Boston, it was a 20 grand in Detroit, a club that they had there. Motown was in Detroit at that time. And so all the Motown acts broke their acts in at this place called the 20 grand. And then it was a club Harlem in Atlantic City before they had gambling. So we worked these kind of places, you know, going across the land just trying to make people laugh. At that time, there were race riots in, all over the United States uh, in all the major cities. African-Americans feeling disenfranchised from the system were rioting. In fact, Harvey had one of the biggest riots. Harvey, where I grew up, one of the biggest riots in the country. And, um, and, and so also students were protesting the Vietnam War uh, all over. So America was in turmoil. I had just gotten out of the service and Tim just got out of college. Anywhere there was racial tension, we went to perform. We did 11 prisons in one year. We did the county jail in Chicago three times in the same year. Um, we didn't preach. We just went and made people laugh, you know, tried to make people laugh. 
and and uh, at, at during these uh, you know very serious times, my I've said this time and time again on interviews that if I die tomorrow, the world doesn't owe me a thing. One of the things I'll always remember of all my career and and forty I've, I've been uh, uh, in the business as I say fifty one years. Touring with Sammy Davis Jr., touring with Smokey Robinson, touring with Gladys Knight and the Pips, Natalie Cole, uh, touring with, with uh, Frank Sinatra for 14 years, performing for presidents. Uh, I mean, all these things that I've done, one of the things I'll never, I'll take to my grave is the times that Tim and I were together, and after a show, a young white kid would come up to us and say, you know, I got a black friend that I want to reach out to, but if I do, the white guys are going to wear me out. But after watching you and you and Tim having so much fun, I'm going to reach out to my black friend. Then a black kid would come up and say, you know, I got a white friend that I really like and I want to reach out. But if I if I do, my, the brothers are going to wear me out. But after watching you and Tim, I'm going to do that. Tim and I both agree that this was more gratifying than anything that we could have ever done. Because race relations are about race relations. You can't legislate love. No government can ever legislate love. So it's about you. It's about people. And what they saw with Tim and I on stage having a lot of fun was two guys having a relationship. It just so happens one was black and one was white. But we were, we were having fun on stage and poking fun at all the stereotypes. Some of the stuff that we did in those days, the politically correct police today would try to run us out of on rail. The politically correct police are trying to destroy comedy and freedom of speech. See, the First Amendment, thousands of men and women died so that you have the right to say whatever you want to say. That's what the First Amendment is all about, the freedom of speech. You know, you can turn us off. You don't have to listen to us. You can walk out the door. You can ask for your money back. But you cannot tell someone what they can say other than yelling fire in a crowded theater. But when you start telling people what they can say, your next step is you're going to tell them what they're supposed to think. And that's when the nation becomes a communist dictatorship. Don't allow that to happen. The stand-up comedians are the last bastion of freedom of speech. That was a long answer to a very short question. <laughs> no, but a great answer for sure. I mean, that was, I think, wonderfully put. Um, I, I'm curious, Tom, because I think a lot of comedians are going through this right now as the pandemic has been going on clearly that has interrupted people like yourself to be able to perform um, in front of live audiences and not getting those laughs and not being able to book the gigs that you guys are used to. And, and someone like yourself who's established, you know, it's, it's one thing. And then you have other people on the other side of the spectrum. I'm sure you can understand the people that are just trying to break in or are close. And now they are unfortunately not able to, I'm curious what you feel like the pandemic, unfortunately, has maybe done for comedians because now they're unable to kind of, you know, flex that muscle of telling jokes. And what have you been doing during the pandemic? Has this been a time for you to to write more? Has this been a time for you to just kind of lay back and relax? How how have you been spending that time? And what do you think it means for the future with everything that's been going on for the pandemic when it comes to stand up comedy? Well, first of all, one of the biggest problems we have, in answer to your question, what I've been doing, of course, I've been doing, I always write. I'm in the habit of writing new material all the time, and, and but always was going to try it out. When I came off the road, I'd go over to the Laugh Factory in Hollywood, and I'd, and I'd get up and try it out. You know, that, that those days are gone. We, we haven't been on stage in 13 months. 
for a comedian to be at their best, there's certain things that have to be in place. One is we always like a low ceiling, if we could have a low ceiling, because laughter is sound. It hits the ceiling and it comes at us. So, you know, the lower the ceiling, I used to hate Caesar's Palace. I worked, I was under contract to seven different hotels in Las Vegas in my career. And I, I, the ones I loved were the Sands, the Desert Inn, the uh, Riviera, the Golden Nugget. They were great comedy rooms because they had low ceilings. Caesar's Palace had a real high ceiling. And so the laughter would, it didn't come back at you the way the other rooms did. We set our timing off of your laughter. You know, if you if you dissect comedy, it gets boring, so I don't want to do that. But when, I'm, when, when, we, when the room is filled and people are shoulder to shoulder, when we're on stage, we're like electricity. Our words are going out all the way through that audience and all the way back up to us, like an electrical current going all the way through the audience and back up to us. And so we set our timing off of that. When you tell people, come in the room, but six sit off to the left, five sit in the back, four over in the corner, and you're leaving gaps, it's like you took a scissors and cut the electrical current that we need to score mm -hmm. heavily. You know, you cut, just cut uh, the circuit out for us. So it, it doesn't work as well. So what's happened in, in, in the, uh, let me digress on something else. On the political correctness, Chris Rock and Jerry Seinfeld said they won't work, they won't work colleges anymore because these kids are being, uh, are being taught all this politically correctness nonsense in their universities. And, and so that's why they, you know, they won't work there anymore. We, the big acts are not going to be able to book big rooms anymore. Who's going to, are you going to sit in a room of, of say a thousand people shoulder to shoulder? People have become so OCD now because of the coronavirus. Even if the whole world got vaccinated tomorrow and they said it's all safe, it's going to be a long time before people are going to feel comfortable sitting in a room where people are out opening up their mouths and laughing, <laughs> you, know, you know, that kind of stuff. I think it's going to, it's going to take a long time um, for that to come back again. Uh, you can, the new comics of today, you know, if you're learning your craft and you're going out in front of 25, 30 people, okay, that's what we all did when you started. But as you become established and you're used to booking two, three, four, five hundred people, eight hundred people come to see you, you know, um, you you need a full house. You know, you don't need them spaced all over the place. And and they're not gonna. I got a call the other day. They want to know if I work in, at the Laugh Factory in Las Vegas. I said, Oh, are you open for? Well, no. We can only allow 50 people in a room that seats like three or four hundred. You know, uh, it, it won't work. Yeah. yeah. It it's going to be interesting, and I've, I've been pondering that as well as a season ticket holder. You know, when will people feel comfortable being shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder at Wrigley Field? And it's, it's the same feeling. When will people feel comfortable at live shows and performances, comedy shows? We've got time for just a couple more questions, Tom. I, I wanted to pose this question to you, um, again, back into your history as, as you think about, you know, as you were honing your craft and, and that moment when you were out uh, with Johnny Carson and the first time. That, that you you really crushed the set um, and were called over to the, you know, called over to talk to Johnny. What, you know, that was really the springboard in, in a lot of ways to, to your, your greater uh, public success. What was that moment like? Because so many, so few people have the opportunity to say, especially now that, uh, that uh, they crushed it on Johnny. Well, you know, wherever you went, after the comedy team split up, wherever you went, um, the, 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 um, uh, the, 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 in 1975, you know, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh, yeah? You ever been on Johnny Carson? 
If you hadn't been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, you weren't a comedian. You might want to be one. You might going to be one. But that was the show that launched the career. Freddie Prince did one appearance on The Tonight Show. The next day, he got a sitcom. The following day, he, two or three weeks later, he was on the cover of Time magazine. I mean, one appearance on The Tonight Show. 26 million people watched that show in those days. And, and so one appearance, your whole life would change. So we all migrated to the West Coast after the comedy team split up. I was on, going on stage every night at the comedy store with all these new kids, David Letterman, um, Gallagher, Michael Keaton, Robin Williams, Jay Leno, you know, Elaine Boozler. These are all, all new kids you know, that I was going on stage with every night. Uh, but to get on that time, show, and it took me a year. I finally did a whole bunch of strange things to finally get on there. I'll tell you about that some other time. But I finally got on, I got an audition and I passed it. I auditioned with a new kid. I, his name was Billy Crystal. I don't know whatever happened. To him, but, <laughs> uh, but I'm on the Chad and Ryan show. So, you know, I don't, I love that's it. right. Anyhow, uh, anyhow so uh, that, when you finally get there, you go to the Tonight Show and they put you in, in makeup and then you go up to your dressing room and then they finally come and get you. They bring you down to the green room and you're going on next and then they bring you out and they put you behind that curtain and you're going to go out in front of 26 million people. Now, the first time I got there, I went through all that and they ran out of time in the green room. They said, I'm sorry, you got to come back next week. We're out of time. I came back the next week, went through the whole procedure again. Sorry, we ran out of time. Three times in a row, they bumped me. On the fourth time I finally got on, I was in the, in the makeup room, and Fred DeCorda, the producer, came in, and he said, I got bad news for you. I said, what? He said, you're going on tonight. You know, so now, <laughs> now you're, you know, when they took me behind that curtain, and, and, and the coordinator has to leave you alone, he said, okay, it's fine. He walks away, and you're back there, and they're in commercial break. Doc Severinsen's playing the music because they're in commercial break. All of a sudden, you're going, oh, my God. I mean, this is the moment. This is the, seize the moment that you heard athletes talk about all their lives. <clears throat> that, you know, that, you know, the, the guy who is going to go back to the minors because he's having a terrible year, but somebody gets injured, somebody else gets injured, and all of a sudden he's up with bases loaded. And this is that moment. If you, if you hit it out of the park right now, you're here to stay. You know, Whitney Houston had a song called That One Moment in Time. You know, there's a moment in time where, where I, I'm just, all of my dreams are a heartbeat away. And all the answers are up to me. And that's what you're feeding you know, I, not only did 26 million people watch it, so every booker from agent, all the, 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 the coordinators across the country, entertainment directors, watched that show. Not only that, my mother had everybody back in Harvey, Illinois, watching, so if I bomb, I can't even go back home. You know, so now you, you, the, the lights come on, they're coming out of commercial break, the music stops, and your heart stops. And Johnny Carson says, we're back now, and I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight because my next guest is making his first appearance on The Tonight Show. Will you welcome, please, Tom Dreesen? Now, that one line, I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight. You know, that's a terrific line. He never uses it any else, but at any other time but that first time. All of a sudden, the curtain opens up, and you walk out and do all these bright lights. You can't see the audience. There's a mark on the floor you've got to hit. You hit that mark, and, and, and there's a cameras in front of you, but you can't see the audience. And you get that first joke out, and it gets a laugh. And I got that second joke out, and it got a laugh. And then pretty soon the third joke, I hear Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon laughing behind me. And now I got an applause. And I ended up getting eight applause. And I closed with, I said, you've been, a, this is, you've been a wonderful audience. This is my first appearance on The Tonight Show. And show business is a tough life. So if you liked me, just if you liked me and you're Protestant, say a prayer. If you're Catholic, <laughs> light a candle. 
if you're Jewish, somebody in your family owns a nightclub. Tell them about me, will you please? <laughs> <laughs> now the, the audience roars, applause, applause. I go back through the curtain, and the coordinator come running around the corner. He said, go back, go back. Johnny wants you to take a second bow. So I, I, you go back through the curtain for a second bow, and Johnny puts that little circular finger up saying, you scored, kid. You know, and, and uh, I never stopped working from that day. That was in December 1975. I never stopped working. I started doing Dinah Shore, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, Johnny Carson, Midnight Special, Rock Concert, Soul Train, American Bandstand. You know, I did $20,000 Pyramid Hollywood Squares. I was doing Murder, She Wrote's in Columbo's. I was being acting roles. Uh, you know, I was touring with Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, I never stopped working from that time, you know. And our thanks to Tom Dreesen joining us here on the Friendly Confines in part two of our interview. That was a lot of fun, David. I really enjoyed talking to him. He had some amazing things to say. And of course, don't forget about his book, Still Standing, My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. You can find it on Amazon.com. Tom is uh, just an absolute gem and uh, a real Cub fan who definitely knows his stuff. And uh, we also want to mention about our social media pages that you can find us on. First, you can find Chad and I on Twitter. Chad is at Gordon. I am at Ryan D. Lieber. And, of course, our Facebook page, if you're not a member of it, please, we encourage you to join. We would love to interact with you. It is the Chicago Cubs Friendly Confines Facebook page. Be sure to check us out. And then our new website, it is www.theconfines.com you can find all our episodes of our podcast on there and if you sign up with your email you will get every new episode that we come out with delivered right to your email so you don't have to go searching for it it comes right to you see david we try to make it as easy as possible and then david for someone like yourself uh, where can they find you on social media? Would you do you allow any Cub fans to uh, get in touch with you on social media? Absolutely, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. It's at CoolPapa six five four. Yes, that's a nod to the old Cool Papa Bell. I snagged it. Um, it's just you know when you first get Twitter, that's kind of what you came. That's what I came up with, and that's what I went with. I mostly post a lot of photos and stuff related to Miami sports, so I know. It's not a lot of Cubs-related stuff, but uh, for any sports fans out there, anyone listening who might be a Dolphin or a Heat fan or something along that line, um, you might get some topics along there, too. So, um, yeah, that's where you can find me at. Awesome stuff. And as we start the eighth inning, David, take it away. Well, listen, as I, I'm hearing you just roll all of this so easily off your tongue, the way you're talking. Have you ever you know, thought about, looking for another job because the Cubs are actually looking for a new PA announcer. Is that something that would be interest you? What do you think about that, that position? I think it would be an incredible job, obviously, to be able to go to Wrigley each day and to just basically um, announce the players coming to bat and announce any, you know, sort of uh, first pitches and please rise for the national anthem. I mean, those are all cool things that you get to say uh, day in and day out. Here's the one thing, though, David. Now, if I was a man of means, um, you know, and, and was like maybe uh, retiring or close to retiring, and I felt 
comfortable with like my portfolio and had everything under control, I could see myself saying, yeah, let me try out. Let me give it a shot and see if I can make this, you know, my quote unquote retirement plan or my retirement gig um, after I've earned plenty of money. Because this is not a full-time position. At least I don't think it's a full-time position. Um, I'm pretty sure this is like a, a, you know, a daily rate sort of job. But yeah. make no mistake, if I had the ability to, you know, live my life and, and just do the PA announcing for the Cubs six months out of the year, absolutely. I think it would be an absolutely wonderful opportunity to do it. What about you? Um, I actually applied. They were looking for a director for the Jumbotron a couple of years ago, and I applied for it but didn't get a sniff. Uh, but yeah, that was one of those things. I was like, holy smokes, wait, like, wait, I can be in charge of creative videos for the Cubs and all. Yeah, like sign me up. So no, absolutely. I did some, I did college PA announcing when I went to college at Old Dominion in Norfolk, Virginia. So I've done some of it before. Um, you know, I don't know. It's, it, it's a great job. It's a lot of fun, but it, it can be tough. It's, it's not an easy job. It, you have to pay attention. You have to, you know, what's going on. You, you really can't blink for a minute. You got to run to the bathroom in between innings. So um, to do it right, you really have to be focused and know your stuff. I will say this. It's one of the great stories. I had to look it up. Bob Shepard, you know, the longtime Yankee announcer yep. with the great voice. He, I remember hearing a story that he loved. He had three favorite names. I asked him, who are the names you love to say? And he said three names. He says, my favorites to say all time were Joe DiMaggio, Derek Jeter, and Shigatoshi Hasegawa. Which just made me laugh because, like, <laughs> it's like two Hall of Famers and then what? So, no, obviously a fun job. So you can have a lot of fun with and you're right. Could you imagine having that job? You're retired, living maybe two or three blocks from Wrigley, and, and that's your summer, you know? Yeah. You, no, you, you could ride you your bike. You could ride your bike to the stadium. Actually, I remember, I meant to say this earlier with Arietta. I one time took a tour of Wrigley Field. We were there 8, 8 a.m. on game day. And who rode his bike right through the front gate with Jake Arrieta? I was like, was that Jake Arrieta? He just rode his 10-speed right through the front door, right into the clubhouse. It was crazy. Unbelievable. I know. It's, it's so cool. And, I mean, listen, like I said, I, I am looking at the job posting right now. It is a part-time position. But, again, if you're in a situation where, you know, either you're a young guy who uh, maybe – has a very flexible work schedule or somebody who, uh, you know, doesn't have to worry about money or is like you said, at the end of their retirement days, um, Hey, sign up. This is uh, a dream job of a lifetime. So, all right. So David, let us move on to the ninth inning. Of course, we've talked about a bunch of different things and it's hard to believe, but opening day is like basically here, right? We are just days away from opening day, David. And so with that being said, um, where do you ultimately see the Cubs finishing in the NL Central this year? And uh, go ahead and give me maybe the the five, um, one through five in the NL Central, how you think it's going to play out. Well, listen, I'll be honest. I'm not big. I'm not a big prediction person, so I'll play, and I'm going to give you my predictions kind of in a different way. I think that, first of all, they should make the playoffs. I mean, the talent on offense, uh, the pitching looks like like they've had in the past a good staff for the regular season. We'll have the same questions we always have if they make the postseason. But this team with the talent they have should be in postseason contention every year. Even on offense, they have such flexibility and depth that they they can withstand an injury. The pitching is a question, but I think pitching is a question for a lot of teams in the league. So uh, when I look at though, I think the offense is going to have to carry this team this year. I, I think you're just going to have to see 
um, the core four and adding Peterson and Horder and that. I, I need to see two guys have like a career year. And I'm looking at you, Chris Bryant, Javi Baez. You're both in contract years. You know, I, I, I want to see you guys become the players that everyone thinks you can be. Um, and I'm not expecting it from both of them, but one of them better do it. And I want to see, you know, these guys take the next step. I want to see them be more consistent. On the, on the pitching mound, I want to see one of the young guys. I want to see one of those the, the guys after the guys we haven't talked about yet, the Maples, the Alzale. Um, I want to see one of those guys desire to be the next ace to say, okay, I'm going to be the guy. I, I want him to, I want that guy to, to emerge and say, listen, I got some older guys on the staff. I'm the, I'm the arm of the future. I'm going to be the strong arm. If we hit the playoff that no one wants to see, because as much as I love the first three guys we talked about Hendricks, Arietta. And Davies aren't going to scare anybody going into a playoff game. But, you know, maybe some of those guys with the liver arm can do something. So that's what I'm looking at. I want one of those young guys to step up. I want KB, Javi to, to fall out. And then I think if those things happen, then, of course, you're going to be dancing right there in the playoffs. And then, you know, anything's happening. Yeah, if there's expanded playoffs again this year, which, I mean, there still could be. I don't know. I know that's crazy to say because we're literally days away from opening day. But there still could be a situation where that happens. But I'm curious if that will um, end up uh, coming to fruition or not. Um, yeah, then I think they have a shot to make the, uh, the NL uh, playoffs. But I said this in the beginning of spring training, David, and I'll say it again. I don't see this team if the, if the playoffs are what we know them to be right with just basically the six teams, three division winners and uh, the three wild cards. I, I ultimately do not think, um, or excuse me, the, the five wild, the two wild cards, five teams. I, I ultimately do not think the Cubs are going to make the postseason. I, I, I still think the Cardinals are kind of the elite of the NL central. Um, then I'm going with the Brewers. And then I know this may sound crazy, but I think the Cincinnati Reds are actually going to be a little better than people ex- expect. And then I got the Cubs fourth and I got the Pirates finishing in fifth. I, I want to be wrong. I really, really do, David. I want to be wrong. But there is nothing that I have seen from this team over the past two years that would give me any reason to think that they're going to be better or um, improved from last year. Maybe I'm wrong, but you know, that's ultimately where I I think I see this team finishing when it's all said and done. I'm also still holding out on, I I don't know how I feel about David Ross yet. And I I don't know how I feel about some of the decisions that, you know, I get more, and you have to realize coming from me, I have to tell you where I'm coming from in Miami, you know, the sports scene down here, I've covered so many managers and head coaches. I try not to fall in love with the the first guy. I I try and be more open-minded and look at them. I remember I mentioned to you, I thought he should have started Darvish in the playoff game one last year instead of Hendricks. And there's some certain things. So this is why you pay your manager. And this is why, uh, you know, you want a good manager. I just hope that he's not Grandpa Rossi with them and two buddy buddy. And that, you know, when, when something needs to be handled, that he can handle it. So that's something that I'll also keep an eye on because if he has the right, you know, you know how it is. Once it gets rolling and you get the right, you know, everything starts going and you catch it you know, then it's easier. So I think this team has the potential to catch on fire. I mean, there's so much talent on the team, but your question, you're right. You're, you're, all your concerns are valid. Can they pull it all together? And the Cardinals, yeah. in regards to the Cardinals, man, they got Arenado Goldschmidt. They just, they relight stack every year, man. I consider the Cardinals, they're always in it. The other teams are up and down. 
yeah, they're good. But uh, yeah, I, I yeah, I, I still think they'll be in the mix at the end, but it'll be tight. They're not going to run away with anything in that division. Absolutely. So with that, that is going to wrap things up on this edition of the Friendly Confines. David, thank you so much for pinch hitting this week, filling in for Chad. We really appreciate it. For Tom Driesen and David, I am Ryan. We will talk to you next time, everybody. Have a good one, and we'll see you at the ballpark. Don't let anyone say that it's just a game For I've seen other teams and it's never the same When you're born in Chicago, you're blessed and you're a field The first time you walk into Wrigley